House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. Congratulations. You've hit the play button on a brand new installment of Capital Ideas, the podcast where members of the majority Democrats in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. If you're a subscriber, welcome back. If you're new here, lucky you. You've found a political podcast where you'll get actual information about things that really affect your life. No spin, no misinformation. No shade thrown. Now and then, a few laughs, and overall a rare window into that big marble building in Olympia where stuff happens every day that makes a difference. Today, the spotlight is on Lakewood State Representative Dan Bronowski. Dan's been serving his constituents in the 28th District for the last four years, and a couple of years ago, his colleagues in the House chose him to be Deputy Speaker Pro Tem. That's a Latin way of saying he presides over quite a bit of the floor action in the House of Representatives. When he's back in Pierce County, Dan's been a firefighter and emergency medical technician for more than two decades. He's a good guy, and if you stick around for the next half hour, I'm pretty sure you'll agree. We talked a few days ago, and here is that conversation. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Dan Bernoski. You're from the 28th Legislative District. You live in Lakewood, and I want people to know that you're the Deputy Speaker Pro Tem of the Washington State House of Representatives, in addition to all the other things we're going to talk about today. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you for having me. It's a real honor and pleasure to be here. I'm really glad we get a chance to talk here on the mic. You've done a lot in four years here, particularly vice chair of one of the major budget committees here Mm -hmm. in the legislature, and also... You run House sessions uh, a pretty significant percentage of the time, along with Speaker Pro Tem Tina Orwall. What's that like? It's amazing. First of all, so it's a real honor that I am elected by my fellow representatives to be in that role. I had an opportunity to run for that spot when then-Representative John Lovick was appointed to his Senate seat. You know, John is a great orator. He is a, a wonderful presider. For me, being so new to the legislature and to be elected in that role, it was a real honor, but I, I knew that I had very large shoes to fill. I mean, John Lovick continues to be an excellent presider over in the Senate, wonderful floor speeches, a great orator, as I mentioned earlier. Um, so I really did my homework tra- to try to step into the role and, and learn about uh, what it takes. So I spoke with Speaker Jenkins, Speaker Pro Tem Orwall, to kind of get a, a little bit of an insight on what they see their role as and how I could be a, a good team member when presiding at the rostrum. And really what I try to do best is serve uh, the people of the state and serve the my fellow representatives in the in the house when it comes to presiding uh, over the floor during debate we have a robust debate about policy um, and my role is to make sure that that debate is respectful make sure that we all adhere to decorum to respect the institution and that way the people of our state have a very clear um, understanding as to the merits or if you disagree with the policy why the policy might not be something that they would support. So with that, uh, me being elected in this role by my fellow representatives, I, it's not something I take lightly, and and it's a real honor and a pleasure to serve in that capacity. Thanks for asking. 
John Lovick is is a friend and a, a leader and a mentor, and he's a great role model for that particular role. I remember that he once described the job of the speaker, regardless of whether it's speaker, speaker pro tem, mm-hmm. as being kind of like a baseball umpire. Yes. You've got to call them as you see them. Yes. And you're not out there working for one team or the other when Correct. you are in that role, even though you are elected to be part of one team. Correct, correct. That is entirely true, and I believe the way that Senator Lovick described it was correct. You, we are an umpire calling balls and strikes as we see them, and I do my due diligence to make sure that I am impartial, and I think that I do a good job at that. I've been... Uh, several legislators have come up to me and, and told me that they do feel that I do that role impartially. I want everyone to be successful when they're speaking on a policy, regardless of what political party they're affiliated with. Um, because at the end of the day, we're all co-workers. We're all sent here by the people of our state to represent them. And it is my role to allow someone from the east side of the state or a more rural community, just as I would uh, an urban community or the west side of the state, to talk to the merits of their policies. I think I do a fairly good job of that. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn or pat my, myself on the back. I, I really believe in the role and I really believe that it's um, correct to be impartial. And just the other day, we had a bill, a, a good Republican bill by uh, Representative Schmidt um, in regards to uh, making sure that we provide protections to uh, referees for sporting events, children's sporting events. And it was a, a great policy. And Representative Richelli from Spokane, he also spoke to the policy, and actually it drew a lot of cheers from the House floor, uh, bipartisan cheers. Uh, Republicans were cheering for what he said, Democrats were cheering uh, for what he said, but I had to gavel Representative Richelli. I had to gavel Representative Richelli because it states in our House rules that we are not to clap in favor of a policy speech. We are not to boo or hiss. Uh, We are there to sit and listen. And it was tough because I felt I felt that the, actually the representative Richelli had a great point. Parents or people that are that are angry at someone who's just trying to referee children's sports or trying to referee a sporting event, they need to really stop. It's it's not okay for the sports. It's not okay for the kids. And Representative Vercelli had a great point, but I had to gavel Representative Vercelli because he, and not necessarily just Representative Vercelli, I think I had to gavel the entire floor of the House of Representatives for cheering on what he said, which I believe was correct, but my role is to be impartial and gavel the entire uh, House of Representatives when I need to. I don't have to be impartial, and I would say that it's sad that a bill like that is necessary. Agreed. I guess it's not too great a distance between cheering or booing and walking over and trying to hit somebody with your cane, Mm -hmm. which maybe characterized legislative bodies a hundred years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think this is a pretty good uh, step forward. Yeah, I I think so. But yeah, thanks for for asking about that. And thanks for bringing all that up. That was a a fun, actually, that's probably a memory that I will carry with me till the end of my career, the time I had to gavel the entire House of Representatives. (laughs) I hope it's the last, but I'm not going to put any money on that. In addition to working for the entire state of Washington while you're standing up at that podium, you were also sent here to represent directly about 150 or so thousand people in your district. So let's talk about your role right now as Representative Bernoski rather than Deputy Speaker Pro Tem Bernoski. You've got an incredible number of bills that passed out of the House in this short legislative session. I don't know what the average would be, but you have seven bills that have now moved over to the Senate. Congratulations. Thank you. 
What do you think would be the more significant of your seven bills here? Because they touch a lot of issues. Yeah, they do. Uh, you know, I think when it comes to, to policies that representatives or, or senators are working on, can you really pick a favorite? I think that there are modest changes that will have a big impact for some people that need a little bit of help. Um, so, for example, I worked on a bill this year and then continue to work on a bill that will protect healthcare workers from mandatory overtime. It doesn't affect a whole lot of people in the healthcare sector, and it builds upon work that we've done in the past to make sure that we don't burn out our healthcare workers. We want to retain them. We want to make sure that they continue to provide the valuable service to the community that they do. And part of that is protecting them from being burnt out. And part of that was uh, working on this mandatory overtime protection. But you know, while it directly impacts a relatively few healthcare workers, it's going to have a big impact on the people of the state in that your healthcare worker is less likely, hopefully, after this bill passes, to suffer from burnout, post-traumatic stress from the amount of hours that they put in taking care of our loved ones and our family members in the healthcare setting. Yeah, I think we want them all to be pretty sharp and, and alert and ready to do their job. Yeah. I want to veer off here for a minute okay. because that also describes your job when you're not around here. Yes. You're a firefighter, EMT. Correct. That's not a very easy job, one that's subject to burnout, I suspect. How do you compare and contrast those roles with being a state lawmaker? Yeah. Well, I think that my profession, uh, firefighter EMT, as you stated, really complements my role here in the legislature very well. We, as you know, have a, a very diverse group of legislators from all uh, backgrounds, all walks of life, all sorts of professions, and my profession is one that touches people. We, we certainly, I think, have a good positive impact trying to save lives, trying to take care of people, trying to take care of people when they're sick out in the field. So whenever something comes up that's related to firefighters, something that's related to EMTs, related to uh, healthcare in general, I can apply my lens as a firefighter and, a, and someone that, that serves my community in that role um, to the policy questions. Just as an educator would be a subject matter expert on things that are K through 12, just like other healthcare providers uh, bring their expertise to that, um, those areas of policy. So I think it's, it's very common complimentary. I'm lucky that when I leave the legislature, when the last gavel goes down, I go back into the community. I see people where they are, where they live. And those lived experiences uh, from people out in the community help me also uh, on policy questions when it comes to the other things that the legislature needs to, to consider. They're, they're very complementary jobs to each other, but very, very different also fundamentally. I want to move now to one of the bills that you've sponsored that now is being considered by the Senate, and that is to do something that I'm surprised hasn't been done yet, but that is to establish a state fallen firefighters memorial here on the Capitol campus. Yeah, well, th thanks for bringing that up. Um, so that came to me as an idea from the Washington State Council of Firefighters, the State Association for Fire Chiefs, uh, and uh, Department of Natural Resources, and a few other stakeholders that... Um, have experienced uh, tragic loss of their co-workers and loved ones, family members, community members, would it not be fitting to have a place here on the Capitol campus that's accessible to the members of the public, that's accessible to those family members and those co-workers of, of firefighters who have lost their lives in the line of duty? And 
And I agree, I think that is appropriate to have a place here on our Capitol campus where someone can somberly take the time to reflect and uh, remember those who lost their lives through the course of their profession, which is firefighting. We have several memorials here on Capitol campus. All of them are wonderful places to reflect on the sacrifices that people before us made, whether it's an armed conflict overseas or whether it's uh, the law enforcement officers memorial. There are appropriate spaces for people to be able to go, and we as stakeholders, and and myself included, thought it would be fitting uh, to have something like that here for firefighters. I've spoken with widows, other family members who have lost loved ones, and I believe it's a a good place for them, and and they are supportive of having something that is much more accessible that uh, we can go to reflect and and, uh, take care of here um, as a state. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for bringing that up. It's uh, it's had a good journey though thus far. I hope it goes to the governor's desk, and I hope at some point in the near future we'll have a, a place to memorialize those who have fallen in the line of duty. I I can't see it not moving. I look forward to when this is established. People are familiar with the term first responder, especially after the pandemic now. But the there's another term that may not be so familiar, which is co-responder. And I would love for you to explain what, who are co-responders and how are they helpful? Yeah, well, well thank you for asking. So co-responders exist now. Um, there are behavioral health professionals that respond with fire, emergency medical services, law enforcement to people who are in a moment of crisis. And it's a relatively new concept. You're correct, I think, in this area. But other areas around the country have used this model pretty effectively. And the concept is, you know, behavioral health needs a certain skill set to be able to respond to folks undergoing crisis, to have the appropriate level of training, to have the appropriate level of expertise. So as a firefighter EMT, I respond to medical emergencies to include behavioral health emergencies, and I have for my entire career. But I am not a behavioral health professional. I have the ability to show up, treat someone. Over the past 23 years in my career, uh, I have taken several people to the hospital, to the emergency room who are having a behavioral health crisis. But is that the most appropriate way to treat people in their moment of crisis? So we as a legislature, uh, especially like Representative Tina Orwall, she's been working pretty extensively in this space. And the idea is to have co-responders not only show up to 911 calls, but hopefully someday to 988 calls too. 988 is a relatively new concept, but it's now in place in the state of Washington. And I think it's working effectively. We have it in Pierce County co-located at our 911 uh, dispatch. Um, it's called the PSAP. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but basically call receiving centers. So 988 call receiving uh, call receivers and dispatchers are working hand in hand with 911 dispatchers to hopefully go along the process to get people the most appropriate care and the most appropriate response. So these are clinical professionals who are experts in behavioral health that will be able to go out and interact with somebody in the community alongside law enforcement, fire, and EMS. But really also when they have the ability to do so safely, 
respond on their own uh, in teams to someone who needs help with behavioral health out in the field and get them the most appropriate care. We are expanding access to appropriate facilities for people to go to receive treatment, for people to go to receive help, and also they'll be able to plug people in to other behavioral health professionals, perhaps a a social worker, uh, perhaps someone else that needs to uh, be able to provide help when it's needed. And and, and the, the need has increased exponentially over the course of my career. I go on many, many, many behavioral health calls as a firefighter still, and I will gladly do that for the rest of my career and will probably continue to do that in perpetuity. But to have a behavioral health professional respond with us, that co-responder that you mentioned, I think is going to allow us to provide the most appropriate levels of care And it's going to be much more effective than just taking somebody to the emergency room when we need to be able to do what's most appropriate for them. So it's it's a flexible model. And to talk about my particular bill, excuse me, this bill is in um, working with the co-responders or co-response outreach alliance. They're an industry group that's relatively new that yeah, it's a bunch of uh, co-responders that are out doing this work in uh, Kitsap County, in King County, all across the state now. What they asked me to do is allow them to work with the University of Washington School of Social Work, alongside with the Healthcare Authority here in the state of Washington, to come up with a certification and training program for co-responders. Uh, somebody like me, firefighter, I could probably lateral into that work, co-response work, but I don't have a whole lot of behavioral health specific training over the course of my career compared to things like CPR or emergency medicine. Would it not be more appropriate for somebody like me to at least get a base education, go out and get a certification, and then lateral into co-response versus 20 years of knowledge um, out working out in the field, uh, working with people where they live? And also some training, but I could certainly stand to get more training. And also this, I believe, will set up a pathway and a career path for people who want to get into co-response to get that appropriate level of training and go out and serve the community as quickly as possible. And someone with your background can continue to do what you do best. Correct, correct, correct. I mean, behavioral health calls take a fair amount of time, as they should, and that's okay. But not every fire department across the state of Washington has the capacity to be with a patient for hours upon hours to get them the most appropriate level of care. We just don't have the the resources. And as the population continues to age and people get more sick as they age, there's been a pretty good increase in demand for service for fire EMS to go out and treat people in the field that are having other medical issues, heart attacks, strokes, the, the kind of other things that people ask us to do. While we're talking about this, I want to give a shout out to the late Representative Sherry Appleton from up in Kitsap County. Sherry was one of the people many years ago who started pushing for this kind of a role to exist. And I just want to make sure that we get her name in there. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Thank you for for mentioning that. I, I really respect the work that she has done to kind of build a pathway for future legislators or current legislators like myself to continue to work in this space. She was insistent. One of the things that I like to do when I'm talking to people on this particular podcast, which is about politics, but it's mostly about policy and it's also about personality. Mm -hmm. And that is to find out, obviously, we don't talk about campaigns or voting and things like that on this podcast, but I think it's perfectly fair to say, how did you end up being a state lawmaker? What, uh, what happened that caused you to say, I'm going to do this? Well, well, thanks for the question. So 
I've always been uh, somewhat involved in politics. So I'm a 23-year firefighter, 23-year union member, uh, member of the International Association of Firefighters. Um, I've always been active in my local, then Lakewood, now West Pierce firefighters. And we, every year, just like many people across the state, come to Olympia to advocate for the issues that are important to us. Coming from an inherently dangerous profession, we've advocated for things like presumptive coverage for certain occupational cancers, for example, uh, post-traumatic stress. We tend to do a lot of uh, pension work to make sure that uh, hopefully when we do get to retire, we do so healthily, so that way we can spend more time with our family after a, a career in, in service. And yeah, I'd come down here every single year and meet my 28th district legislators, um, both in the House and the Senate. And as you do that, you kind of become a, a known commodity uh, down here in Olympia. Olympia is kind of a, a small company town where a lot of people kind of know everybody. And um, so I, I have known my legislators for several decades now. And Anyway, there became an, an opportunity to, to run for office a couple of years back. And for me, uh, someone who's advocated for firefighters, someone who's advocated for uh, trade unionists and, and people in the labor community and working people across the state, it seemed like a good fit for me to take my advocacy work that I had done before and uh, bring it here to Olympia, where... There are other people advocating for many good things, regardless of, uh, like I said, whether it's for working people, whether it's for healthcare access, whether it's for uh, filling potholes and making sure that bridges stay up and get built. Um, there's a lot of people down here advocating for a lot of good things, and, and that's how I got involved in politics, was advocating for firefighter issues and working the issues for working people across the state. And when there became an opportunity for run for office, um, you know, I can't speak for, for everybody, but I'm one that, you know, can't say no to an opportunity like that. And I took it, and I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to come here, serve my district, serve the people of our state um, in the role that I currently am in as a representative in the 28th Legislative District. I think for me, again, not only my career uh, as a firefighter EMT, but the fact that I've served the community that I live in for 23 years, and um, they they work uh, very collaboratively. Being a firefighter and, and being a, being a lawmaker, policymaker, legislator, so that's how I got involved. Uh, many people have many different paths, but that was my path: was working for firefighters, working for firefighter issues, and working on issues that working people care about. I want to mention also that you're a military veteran Correct. of the National Guard for many years. I think that's something that people listening to this should just know about you. Yeah, well, thanks for bringing that up. I was uh, proud to serve my country, proud to serve my state, Washington Army National Guard from 97 to 03. I was a, a 19 kilo, that is a M1 Abrams tank crewman. Uh, I did that uh, back when uh, there was an armory in Puyallup, uh, Troop E3 or 3rd Cav. And uh, the reason I joined the National Guard is because a couple of high school friends were doing that. And P the Puyallup Armory was my hometown armory and went in there and uh, talked to the recruiter and, and signed right up. It was probably one of the easier uh, enlistments for uh, a recruiter in that particular armory. I'd like to thank. And yeah, I went to basic training. The So my summer vacation between my junior and senior year of high school, I went to basic training. And then after I graduated from high school, finished that advanced individual training at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And uh, yeah, I did six years in the Guard. And uh, I'm proud of that. I, I was proud to have served my country. And uh, it's an experience that 
that I'll take with me um, throughout the rest of my life, the rest of my career here, and uh, it allows us to kind of reflect a little bit too. There's a lot of legislators here that do a lot of good work for uh, prior service military, active duty military folks, and our National Guard members. And for me, being someone who's prior service and served in the National Guard, it's kind of gives me a unique perspective as well as uh, what my experience was back in the day and what the experiences are now of people in our uh, Washington National Guard. And and uh, they have a tough job. They have a tough role to fill. I understood and stand that now. I understood it then. And we're going to continue to do work that will allow them to do the great work that they do for us, whether it's national security, whether it's state security, whether it's natural disasters, uh, whether it's pandemic response. They do a lot of work and we ask a lot out of them. And it's difficult for them to get away from family. I, can, I completely understand that. And the employers are making a sacrifice as well because it's not the full-time job. It's not the, the job that pays the bills. They're making a, a huge sacrifice to serve us, um, whether they're on drill weekend, whether they're on their, their two-week drill, or whether they get deployed, which happens an awful lot, especially over the past 20 years with the um, just dynamics of the world. Having some pretty significant national security threats over the past 20 years. We've asked a lot of our, out of our Guard members, and they continue to answer the call, and I'm proud of them, and I was proud to have served um, our state in that capacity. I appreciate that you made that decision. Thank you. I noticed in your legislative bio that you and your wife have a dog named Pepper. What what kind of dog is Pepper? Uh, Pepper is a standard schnauzer, and uh, she's a wonderful pup. She is wild, has a ton of energy. Go, We take her to the park just like every other dog owner across our state to uh, get some exercise out. But she's a good watchdog, a good companion, uh, just a, a lovable pup, and uh, they're all family. I've known schnauzers, and schnauzers tend to be smarter than many of the people I know. Well, she's too smart for her own good. If you uh, leave a schnauzer unattended for a while, they'll get themselves into trouble. It's, it's always entertaining, but uh, you got to keep a, a close eye on a schnauzer, that's for sure. Dan, we've been on the mic a long time. I know that uh, we might have run into your next appointment, and I'm going to have to let you go. Before I do, I want to give you the opportunity to tell me what's the last thing we're going to talk about here. Well, well, thanks for the opportunity. So I'd like to mention very briefly, I'm working on a bill now that passed out of the House unanimously that um, was just heard in the Senate, and I hope it makes it all the way to the governor's desk. It allows for the, uh, the Secretary of Health to give school medical professionals, school nurses, uh, a standing order to administer epinephrine. The idea from this policy came from uh, my job uh, as a firefighter. Went on a call a couple of years ago now where a student was stung by a bee. The local school health professional did not have access to epinephrine to administer to the student in case the student went into an anaphylaxis and had a severe allergic reaction and had difficulty breathing. Fortunately, that student did not. Turns out that the student was not uh, allergic to bees. But between that call where I experienced that issue at a local high school to where this policy is now, uh, came up with the idea where, hey, this is something that we have to fix. Schools have had the ability to carry and administer epinephrine through an auto injector for years. Um, it's not a new policy. It's not a new concept. 
But what's different about my policy is the standing order piece. So now uh, school health professionals can administer a life-saving medication, and it's just understood that they're allowed to do this because seconds count when it comes to severe allergic reactions. If someone air, someone's airway closes up, uh, it becomes really difficult for them to retain control of that airway. So this will allow a school nurse to go ahead and administer that epinephrine. And I think the other key difference, too, is, again, going back to my role as a firefighter, we at the fire department stopped using epinephrine auto-injectors. And the, the trade name's EpiPen uh, for folks that might not know what an auto-injector is. Basically, it's, uh, it's a preloaded dose. It has uh, a spring on it. And all basically all I have to do is take the, the cap off and take the uh, injector and push it into your thigh and administer the, the, the medication that way for somebody that's not a medical professional. We stopped buying those uh, a couple of years ago for two reasons. One, we were having supply chain issues, and it wasn't very reliable to have for us to have access to that drug. Two, the the auto injector itself is is very expensive. They're about three hundred and fifty dollars a dose, give or take, probably a little bit more now. And they only have a shelf life of about a year, year and a half. So we were replacing epipens fairly often. Um, well, it turns out that you can buy epinephrine in a vial, and that's what we do at the local fire department to do a couple of things. One, save money. Two, cut down on waste. Uh, you can't just recycle an auto injector. You have to throw it away with regulated medical waste sometimes if you use it. Um, so I wanted to parallel that uh, into what school districts can do for their, for their students, what school nurses can do uh, to administer the medication, the life-saving medication for those students. So really what it does is accomplishes a couple of things. It uh, reduces costs for school districts, allowing them to spend more money on educating our children and students. Two, it, it cuts down on waste. And three, um, it allows those school administrators and uh, medical health professionals to administer the medication, the life-saving uh, medication, epinephrine, uh, quickly, effectively, and uh, save the lives of students. Uh, unfortunately, what we're seeing is uh, a lot of undiagnosed anaphylaxis and severe allergic reactions for kids that didn't know they were allergic to something until it happens to them, and it happens to them in a severe way. So I'm hoping that uh, the policy continues to move. I hope to save uh, the lives of our students, and I hope to save school districts and taxpayers a couple of dollars by allowing them to purchase and stockpile vials of epinephrine versus solely epinephrine in an auto-injector. It's a trite phrase, but that's what they call a win-win around here. I think right. so. Congratulations. Thank you. We've been talking with Representative slash Deputy Speaker Pro Tem Dan Bernoski from the 28th Legislative District, and I, for one, have enjoyed the heck out of this conversation. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dan. It was a real pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm not one to talk about myself a whole lot, which uh, probably sounds odd for a politician, but that is true, so I appreciate the time that you had with me today, and uh, gosh, what a great conversation. Thank you so much. I'm really glad we had it. Thank you. Thank you. And there you have episode number 2409 of Capital Ideas. I hope you feel like you know more now than you did a half hour ago. If you do and you haven't subscribed yet, you can do so in the blink of an eye. We're available on the usual podcast sites, but if you want, you can just navigate over to housedemocrats.wa.gov and click on the media button up top. It'll be obvious at that point what to do next, and I hope you will. What we talk about here is your state, and your state government. 
What happens here matters. The more you know about what goes on in the Capitol, the better you can make it work for you, your business, your family, your friends, and your 8 million fellow Washingtonians. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first for the last 135 years. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you.